0: This message by Terry Virgo was recorded at the New Frontiers Together on a Mission Conference 2007 in Brighton. My personal gratitude to every individual, every church. Thank you so very, very much for your ongoing commitment. I never know what the figure's going to be. Uh, I don't want to know before the morning, so we're all in that together. So I'd never want to see that happen again like that. (laughs) Whoever planned that, (laughs) that was very exciting and terrifying and ultimately wonderful. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for elders who have inspired their churches to get involved. Nigel mentioned earlier that uh, one of the things that results from our not being at the Stonely Bible Week is people don't have such close access to the vision, and I am do hope that the DVD helps, but of course that first-hand involvement means that uh, literally tens of thousands of people uh, don't have that joyful first-hand access. So for us to be bringing this size offering is absolutely breathtaking, and uh, I can only say a huge, huge thank you. Uh, thank you especially again to elders who have faithfully brought that to your churches, and thank you for so many individuals who doubtless did give then, and then again last evening said, I want to do it again, I want to get to be part of this uh, again and again. I'm so very, very grateful for your ownership. I want to ask you to keep praying for us as we look to God for wisdom and guidance as we distribute it. We're very conscious that one day we stand before God to give account for what we did with our stewardship and uh, your amazing trust in us as you've given so generously. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, this morning, my only disappointment in looking at the DVD was that it didn't include some rather outstanding dancing that took place down there last night. And uh, although I really tried to pull a string or two and say, get that on, they said, oh, too late, too late. It's, all, it's already done. Okay, would you like to turn to Joshua? for our final session. And uh, I'd like to say, I've, as I felt God drew me to Joshua, feeling so much that he was emphasizing and underlining to us about it being a new era. I, I was really waiting on God. Uh, very much feel huge responsibility. What is the real overall theme, which I feel has come through again and again, to be honest. And uh, we don't actually get together as speakers and try and arrange what sort of uh, theme we should go for. It's never been our style. Uh, Each one is seeking God, saying, what has God got for me? Each speaker is doing that. Obviously, the seminars are planned, but uh, uh, from the main platform. And uh, there's been this consistent word about our moving forward. And I think even this morning again in the prophetic, uh, God is underlining that reality. So I was actually very surprised when I found I couldn't escape from Joshua chapter 7 For this final morning, and especially being a final morning, which uh, by nature tends to be a bit of a jamboree, but uh, Joshua 7 hasn't got that note about it. But you know, we are always trying to be obedient to the Spirit, and I felt the Holy Spirit really bring me to this extraordinary chapter, which really kind of reflects something of the book of Acts, where I often feel Joshua, the book of Joshua, is a kind of a parallel to the book of Acts, where suddenly they're breaking through into a new day. And uh, there in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, you get that sudden uh, blip with the experience of Ananias... And Sapphira, which actually has been referred to uh, during the time we've been together, that sudden step backward, it seemed, except that with God acting so sovereignly, fear came on the people, and God's presence came on the people, and actually they went forward in a new purged, uh, and fear was on them all, yet God kept adding to them daily, those who are being saved. This was a new community breaking out on the planet, and God wanted no nonsense in the midst of that revival. And here you get a similar kind of parallel story in the Old Testament. As this triumphant army moves forward, we get a certain, a sudden uh, insight into one individual. And of course, this army is not, as sometimes it's referred to, a faceless army of kind of robots. It's people who have their weaknesses and their strengths and their vulnerabilities and that's who we are and i want to bring this word to you i believe with uh, god's compassion that we want to go through together we don't want to lose out at any place god's been so kind to us bringing us this far his infinite mercy that we're still going His keeping power i can't uh, really take it in how kind and gracious he's been to us but with all my heart, I want us to say, let none of us be missing as we press forward together. Now, this is a, a really a warning chapter. And so I'm going to read it with you uh, this morning. As ever, I'm reading from the NASB, so you may find a word here or there differs if you're reading the NIV or something else. Joshua 7. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. This is immediately following, of course, the victory over Jericho. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, go up, spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Don't make all the people toil up there. They're few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? If only we'd been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They'll surround us. They'll cut off our name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you've fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. And they've even taken some of the things under the ban. They're both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they've also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel can't stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. And I will not be with you any more unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus... The Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who has taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, he took the family of the Zerahites and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man and Zabdi was taken and he brought his house hold near man by man and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken and then Joshua said to Achan my son, I implore you give glory to the Lord the God of Israel give praise to him, tell me now what have you done? Don't hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they're concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, they ran to the tent, behold, it was concealed in the tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua, to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that belonged to him. They brought them to the Valley of Achor. And Joshua said, "Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day." And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire. After they'd stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Father, we look to you right now for your presence. We thank you for the inspiration of the scriptures which are given for our good. And we pray, therefore, Father, right now in Jesus' name, that you will take your word, your living, powerful word, and do us good. Pray for every person here that we might benefit from this word. And I pray for some whose lives will be absolutely transformed that we might step out from this place thoroughly fit and ready for the battle that lies ahead. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Well, one chapter earlier couldn't have ended with more elation and excitement. Uh, Jericho had fallen, what seemed invincible, walled up to heaven, uh, utterly terrifying, and no doubt those inhabitants feeling absolutely secure i mean we do have mighty walls here they may look a bit scary the wall the army outside but we are behind these walls suddenly as we've seen by faith the walls of jericho fell And uh, this extraordinary, invincible army marches forward and no wall can even save uh, the Canaanites. They are in. They are running into God's magnificent purposes. And it says in chapter 6, verse 27, so God was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. The word went across the nation uh, and God had said to him, as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. I'll make you famous. And here this tremendous battle had already accomplished that. He was now famous in the land. His name, he's an invincible leader of an invincible army. And yet, extraordinarily, within a few verses, here into chapter 7, first of all, the story is told. Uh, We are allowed to see the kind of subplot in uh, the opening verse, as the writer of uh, Joshua just writes it in that fashion, just puts us in the picture as though we say, Oh gosh, there's a time bomb lit under all this. And uh, the conversation goes on as Joshua says to his guys, What's next? Go and spy out. And they go and look and say, Oh, <laughs> if we can take Jericho, this is a pushover. We don't need many to go up there. And Joshua uh, takes their advice. Having just asked them to look at first, he rather foolishly, instead of being a responsible leader, just takes on board their perceptions of things. They were not qualified to do that for him, but he foolishly took that on board and just sent a small company who were thoroughly vanquished, humiliated, ran for their lives, and some even destroyed. And Joshua is completely smashed he's completely undone. From one minute being invincible, triumphant, no no doubt walking among his leaders saying, how about that? To suddenly hearing the news, we've just been defeated. And God had said, no man should be able to stand before you. And he says, but this world will now get out. This will get out. And they'll surround us and cut us off. That's the end. We're finished. And so you get this extraordinary human factor. We've been triumphing and celebrating what an almighty great God he is. And the Bible's full of such triumphs. But the Bible's also full of the human uh, dilemma of our vulnerability. And how we can swing like a pendulum from mighty triumph to all grief we are finished. There's no way for They'll cut us off. Shame and there's no future. There's no future for me. We can know such swings. You can feel that as a young Christian, you can feel that as an experienced leader, you can feel that as a church planter after a first breakthrough and then a problem and a financial pressure, and oh God, will this get out that we're not going to make it? Fear, can we, can we really make it? Are we, we going to make it? And from that sense of invincibility, which you can have at a great event, a great triumph, suddenly swinging to, oh what on this going to happen? So he begins to cry to God. And do notice that Joshua is so much a spiritual man that his cry is to God. He doesn't say to the general, how did you fight? What did you do? He's not really interested in what was the strategy. He's not really saying, well, did you line up properly? That's not the deal. The deal is, God, what happened? He's looking to God. He's not just looking to the immediate. He's looking beyond. And we should learn lessons there straight away. But let me just uh, line up then and say, what is, the, what is the big picture? We're focusing, we inevitably focus on this man, Achan, for a while this morning. But it's good for us to back up and say, what, what is the huge thing that's happening here? I want to look at it from two different perspectives. One, what is happening to the Israelites? Two, what is happening to the Canaanites? They are going into this extraordinary land. They are going into a new world for them. And in a sense, Abraham is like another Adam. God's starting again, if you like, in Abraham. Adam has failed miserably. He's been pushed out of the presence of the Lord. He's pushed out of the garden, out of paradise, out of the presence of God. And the world is in disarray until God calls another man, Abraham and begins to say to him similar things to what he said to Adam. He said to Adam that he should have dominion, he should fill the earth, he should represent God. Then that all goes awry. We'll see later some very similar factors, but you'll find in Abraham, God starts again and says to him, now I'm going to take you to a land, and you're going to multiply. And use a similar language, you're going to multiply, you're going to bless the nations. But like Adam, it starts in a small garden. Now, now I'm going to bring you to a special place. It's like another Eden. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of hills and valleys on which the eyes of the Lord continually stands, like Eden. And when they sent in spies the first time, they picked some of the fruit and they picked a cluster of grapes. And they said, I don't think I can hold this. Well, let's get a pole. Okay, pole. One guy, other guy, put the grapes on the pole and they come out and uh, they're carrying this one cluster of grapes. Hey, this is like another Eden, full of fruit and beauty and rivers and, and the presence of the Lord. God said, my eyes continually upon it, I will be with you in the land. They're going into a promised land. It's like a great recovery. It's like God's next phase of recovering a new creation. He actually says, there'll be cities you've not built. How did they get there? They're created. There'll be vineyards you've not planted. You mean it's already, yeah, it's like creation. It's just there. You go in. There's no process with God. He creates. Now we know that that's the imagery behind it. You Just go in. It's already there. There's a land for you to go in and possess. And again, similar with Eden, there is a don't touch prohibition. But don't touch. Don't take what is devoted. Don't take what's under my ban. There's certain things you mustn't touch. There is a prohibition. There's a go in, possess, it's yours. Go multiply, go and take it. But don't touch. There's all kinds of reminders of paradise which became lost. But paradise will be regained even on this planet as God takes us on. But we'll come back to that later. But here's the people who are pressing into their new land where God will be. Where you can talk to God. Like Adam used to talk to God. God will be with this strange people in the earth whom he's chosen. That's one aspect of the story, a very real aspect to it. There's a second reverse aspect to it, which is also happening, that God is coming in with judgment on the nation. So two things are happening at once. God had looked upon this land and saw the horrible sinfulness in the land, gross evil, even into their religion. Their religion was gross, deeply corrupted, wicked in the extreme. And God said to Abraham centuries before, ages before, he said to Abraham, I will take you into this land. But he actually said, even back in Genesis 15, that their sin there is not yet complete. It's like God's showing mercy. Okay, you're, it says in Romans 1, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. The whole world is. And Canaan was still storing up. It's like God said, I'll hold back, I'll hold back, but there'll come a day when enough and I will judge Canaan. That also is happening. And so Joshua's army is rather like Noah's flood when God said enough. Or like Sodom and Gomorrah when fire fell from heaven. God said enough. I won't have that anymore. And so Joshua's army was in one sense going in to inherit, but also going in as God's army of judgment. They were going in to judge. They were going in to bring God's judgment on gross evil that had infected every aspect of life. And so there was very clear statement earlier in the passage saying, don't touch, don't touch, because you're coming in with judgment. You're coming in like light, into darkness and you have no fellowship with the darkness you come in with my light into that place that's who you are that's what you're going to do and of course the story turns on the subplot of one man who was double-minded about what he was doing As I say, the way it's written is like a time bomb. Just tell you in verse 1, the story goes on and pow, it all surfaces when trouble hits. All happens through a double-minded man. That's the background. So what happened? Here's the man. He's in the battle. He's going ahead. And the story turns in verse 21. An independent assessment results in a secret agenda. All right. An independent assessment results in a secret agenda. Another viewpoint is being held in the heart of one of the soldiers. One of the guys who's come to bring light in the darkness. He's not so persuaded. He's he's a vulnerable person in the army. He's not single-purposed. He's finding what God finds unattractive, attractive. And it's right in the depths of his heart. And you see this process, which is there in a few phrases. Just a few frightening verbs, and we'll just quickly run through them. In verse 21, it says, I saw among the spoils a beautiful robe from Babylon, silver and gold. I saw. Now, of course, seeing in itself is harmless enough, unavoidable. You see things. But that's not the end of the story. And also, the the Bible just wants to warn us, because that first step is actually so frighteningly powerful, you need to be careful what you look at. Because this is a terrifying thing. You could say, well, I saw, I couldn't help seeing. But the story back in Eden starts like that. It says, Eve saw that the fruit was delightful to look at. And it was delicious. It was a delight to the eyes, Genesis 3, 6. She saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. So although it was clearly forbidden, you mustn't touch, there was something about that that captivated Eve. It was a delight to the eyes. The forbidden thing was delightful. Now we're finding that that is recurring. A delight to the eyes. Later, the Apostle John will write about, be careful about the world. Because of what? Well, the lust of the eyes lust of the flesh, pride of life, but he starts with the lust of the eyes, we have a vulnerable spot, there is a danger area, we can't help seeing, but there's latent power can burst, so much so that Jesus said some brutal words, he said if your right eye offends you, gouge it out, I mean that's brutal language, he's saying get rid of it, he says it's brutal, It's it's better to be with one eye and get through with God than to to have two eyes and get lost. So Jesus uses very brutal language. Pluck it up because there's a danger in seeing. We know about David, who was the man after God's own heart. A man of such beautiful temperament. What a character. Don't you love the Psalms? Don't you love his life? Don't you love the way he was Everything about him is so magnificent. And then it says one day he didn't go to battle. And when he didn't go to battle, he's just on the rooftop of his palace and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And the story goes on and on and on until he's totally ruined. The first that we're seeing. There's a terrifying power. It was the shame, the pathway to shame, disaster, and death. I'm sure on the day of terrible public shame and judgment, he wished, I bet, wish, Achan wished he'd never ever seen it. You might say, well, I saw it. I said, I just saw it. Any of us could see it. He we said, well, no harm in seeing. But at the end, when, when Achan stood there and said, I am the man, I bet he wished, I wish I'd never even seen it. I could have, oh, if I hadn't gone past that, I wouldn't have seen it. I'm sure that was his attitude. If that's how dangerous seeing is, how come some of us actually choose to look? How come some of us go to the place where you know you can look? How come some of us go back and look again? How come some of us take things to look at or turn switches to look at? If, if just when you're doing something to glance was the first step in destruction. How come we're so stupid that we don't just catch a glimpse, we say, I think I'll go back again and look. And there's a pattern to my life when there's no one around to uh, just get on that computer or... How How can you dare to do that? When just a glance ruined this man. He saw... to see sometimes, yeah I can't help it we see, we all see, we live in an age where we just can hardly help seeing. but even seeing was enough to ruin the sky don't volunteer to see don't say hit me again don't say look here I am I'm just fodder for you when just seeing is dangerous he saw and then next it says, there's this process. You see, it's kind of a horrible process. It just hooks. He saw and he coveted. It's an old Bible word, isn't it? coveted. He kind of became fascinated. It all happened very quickly, but it's a clear process in God's perspective. I'm sure he didn't meditate about this process, but it's there. He became fascinated. He fancied it. He was infatuated with it. He fantasized about it. He began to get a deep craving for it, which was so great that he was going to disobey almighty God. The craving dominated. He coveted. He, he just fantasized. I thought, I could have that. He went from sight to something far more Dangerous. Far more dangerous. He allows his imagination to captivate him. Now, obviously, we tend to think a lot about the sexual realm in this kind of thing because you see it in David and it's broadcast around us on a daily basis. But actually, here we're talking about wealth. Wealth and riches. The Bible says a great deal about such things. 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who want to get rich, say, want to get rich want to get rich. Sounds pretty harmless. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. So Paul is very clear. Just just to want to be rich is terribly dangerous. And here for Achan, it wasn't actually the sexual area. It was, hey, I could have that. That's there. That's takeable. It's in my reach. We're told in the New Testament, beware. It's not just having wealth. It's the prestige, the power, the independence that goes with it. It said in the Barclays advert recently, wealth means you can tell the rest of the world to get lost. It's just having your independence. Have enough. Be wealthy. Make money. Then you can do your own thing. Here we go. Be careful of coveting. James says about this process in James 1.14, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed with his own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's a process. It's it's conceived, lust is conceived. You, You linger there too long. You stay with it too long. You allow what was just a glance to become a preoccupation, to form a pattern, to dominate conduct, to affect your history and your end. So the third word is he took. He saw, I said, I saw it, I coveted it, I, I was fascinated with it, I really wanted it. I took, physically disobeyed the explicit instruction of God, defied God's clear command, acted completely contrary to God's plainly revealed will. That's what he did. When we do this sort of thing, that is what we're doing, we are acting completely against God's revealed will. Eve was told, don't touch. This guy is called, don't touch. And beloved, when we do touch, we are consciously going against God's clearly revealed will. Eve thought, I know better. I know what I'm doing. And here this man took the same step. David physically took what he knew he should never have touched that process. And then thirdly, he, or fourthly rather, he hid. Because you see, the outcome of stuff taken that you shouldn't take is never fulfilling. It never brings complete joy. It offers that. It suggests that. But for you, it's always got to be hidden. It's always got to be in the dark. It's always got to be when no one's watching. It's always got to be don't tell anybody. Because it's forbidden. It's under the ban. And so if you're going to have it, you can have it, but you can't have it. You can have it, but nobody else is allowed to know. So there's no joy in secret sin. There's no fulfillment. There's no abandonment. Not like the abandonment of joy that we could experience here last night. Total abandonment. Because no, no, it's secret. You mustn't let anybody know about it. There's no real fulfillment. It keeps you in a hidden world. So for Adam and Eve, they had to hide from the Lord, they even hid from one another. There's a shame. For David, after Bathsheba, he could never have looked his captain in the eye again when he arranged that deal with Uriah and said, just pull back and let him get killed. And I guess from then on, the relationship, I wonder how he ever looked at him again. There's a horrible thing about secret sin. There's relational problems that follow from it. As maybe we glance at one another and say, yeah, we should have done that, should we, together. It's a wrecker, it ruins, it spoils, it offers such immediate fulfillment, but it's a killer. He had to hide it. Achan couldn't enjoy what he'd taken. He couldn't enjoy it as an Israelite. He could have enjoyed it, if you like, as a Canaanite, but as an Israelite, he couldn't. But actually, the Canaanites weren't going to enjoy it much longer, because the wrath of God was coming. And he's supposed to be clear about these issues. He's supposed to be walking in the light. He's supposed to be God's agent of God saying, enough of this. As God looks upon our planet today in his own heart, there's a cry, enough of this. And as he raises up his church, beloved, we go forward with joy and excitement, but also, there's also rev- a revelation of the judgment of God in it. As light breaks out, but he needs an army that knows which side it's on. It needs every soldier to know which side am I on when no one's watching. What side am I on when I I think, wow, I could have that. But it's under the ban. And so you find here, this whole battle turns on a double-hearted, double-minded person. Are we safe with you? Is God safe with you? Is your squadron, your regiment, your band of brothers, are they safe with you? You know what the issues are. are we in this together, or you say, well, sometimes I, I don't know, I just drop out of the battle. What are the lessons then? How how could the disaster have been avoided? Well, for Joshua, two things. Well, one for Joshua, one for Achan originally, just to stay with the battle for a moment. Joshua certainly should have avoided self-sufficiency. He was very quick to rush from being thoroughly dependent on God with a fearful awareness of these massive walls and an army and how on earth are we going to do that? and total dependence on god before the angel of the lord before this captain of our armies of god and dependent and obedient quickly became self sufficient hey that's one lesson beware beware self sufficiency beware thinking hey we can do this now okay lord i can handle this that's not what god's after he's looking for fellowship he's looking for us to be listening beware that danger. He moved very quickly from dependence to independence. But then secondly, Achan. Achan completely forgot his identity and therefore his calling. He lived as an independent individual. He failed to recall God's purpose in his life and in the land. And that's why it's so important, beloved, that we realize Christianity is essentially a corporate experience. He was part of an army. He was part of an advancing army. He was part of God's judgment spoken about back to Abraham ages ago. And he's in step. He's in this thing. And suddenly, in God's onward-marching purpose, we've got a guy who's got another idea. It's scary to be so out of step with God. He forgot who he was. He was not ruthlessly committed to God's assessment of the situation. See, what does God think about the modern culture? Are you ruthlessly committed to his perspective? The Bible says God is angry with sin. The verse underlined in my Bible, which says this, who knows the power of his anger? I mean, God is angry. Do you ever feel angry? He wow. Inasmuch as we don't, we're not really in step with how he feels about this society. God was breaking into a dark place and Achan found the darkness more attractive. That's where he missed it. But what about us? Well, for us also the fundamental issue of our identity. We are not individuals, but we are part of a body. To become a Christian is to be baptized into a community. We sometimes sound like a group that's constantly going on about the local church. Well, beloved, it's not just about a strategy for advancement, though sometimes we refer to it in that way, church planting. Jesus said to his disciples, "'Go and make disciples.'" of all the nations. In obedience to that they instinctively did what? They planted churches. Because that's how you do it. That's how you make disciples. You form communities. And you can't become a disciple of Christ without being in one of those communities. It's impossible to grow to maturity without having brothers and sisters around you. And so for us, one of the ways through to sanctification, to keep you safe. Is, is not to take church membership lightly. It's all I go here, sometimes I go there, I go to conferences quite a bit. No, no, it's being in, the, it's not just for your social life, it's for your salvation. It's to help you get free from sin. It's to help you to feel I'm marching with the army. I'm not so easily thinking, oh, that looks interesting over there. And so Christianity that emphasizes the individual all the time is not helpful. And so much Christianity is like that. You can look at your television screen. What is often presented as Christianity is about you, your personal fulfillment, ten ways you can be successful with this. You can be successful with this. You can be fulfilled. You can be more fulfilled than you thought you were. You can have this. You can have that. And the whole thing is around you. And you've you've misunderstood. The whole point is that we die to self and get baptized into an army, a body, a people. You say then, do you you mean that God doesn't love me and have a wonderful plan for my life? Yes, He does, actually. But you know, the way He works it is in community. It's not that He wants you lost. We don't overstate, and that's why I'm always withstanding that concept of a faceless army. It's not an overstate, oh, we don't want your personality, we just want you there. No, God loves your personality. God loves the way you will fit in the body, but that's the way you're going to come to maturity, and that's one of the ways you're going to be safeguarded from the terrible mess that Achan got into. We need to understand that's part of it. There is a fearful responsibility, and we need to beware of Christianity that focuses on just your personal fulfillment. And there's no reference to the church. It's just can't sometimes just psycho-babble with Christian words added. No, it's in the body it's in Christ it's in relationship with him and your brothers and sisters and so much New Testament sanctification is about what we do for one another with one another to bring us through we have massive responsibilities and fearful and glorious privileges when you become a Christian you become a member of Christ our fulfillment is found in him so you need to make sure that you're in a live, living body. Let me encourage some of you in the mobilized sections. You go away to university, college, don't float. Find a group that takes church seriously. Find people you know truly are elders in God that you can say, Please, will you help shepherd my life? Elder isn't just a title, it's a gift, it's a shepherding, it's a, a function to you. You need a shepherd. Who cares for you? You don't say I go there sometimes. No, you need to relate to some shepherds. Say, I'm one of your flock now. And don't think, well, I'm here at college for three years, I don't know. No, no. While you're there, you comes walk in the light, say, look, I don't know, I'm here three years, but please, while I'm here, will you be my shepherd? I need to be in here. I need to have somebody looking caring for me. It's not incidental, it's fundamental to what we're trying to do in the earth and what God wants. Sadly, the church often reflects the culture and the axe hasn't been laid to the root of our need. We carry over the stark individualism of our generation into the church. The magnificent book I recommended to the leaders yesterday and I'm glad to hear that all went except the one I was still holding up here, which is now down there. Uh, Bruce Longenecker, I'll just read with a name like that. I mean, <laughs> Bruce Longenecker who wrote the commentary, or at least that magnificent book, he says in there, in contrast to the rampant individualism of our day, Paul understands personhood to be fundamentally relational. In contrast to the human propensity towards self-centeredness, whether egocentric or ethnocentric, Paul points to a scenario where social relationships are characterized by the volunteering of self for the benefit of others, the offering of one's resources and energies for the nurturing of others. In contrast to our modern times, where freedom, social liberties, personal rights have become the mainstay of so much of the Western developed world, Paul's theology of freedom translates into the practice of responsibility towards and love for others in a network of mutual care and support. We abandon this rights concept, my rights. My rights. Hey, if you were in an accident, get in touch with us. You may have rights. We could perhaps get this for you. Demand your rights. What about my rights? The gospel is totally contrary to that. And the way you work that out is not by just living alone or on the top of a pillar. You work it out by a relationship with people who you make space for sometimes in your small group. Or in the work among the children or among the musicians. You learn what it is to die to yourself when someone else stands in that place. And it's in the process. You don't work it out alone. Oh yes, I will be more this and I'll be more that. No, you work it out in the lifestyles of relationships. So that's where we must make sure that we step in. We remember our identity. We live for the people. We live for them. Jesus died that he might redeem for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus said in John 17, For their sake I sanctify myself. That corporate awareness must grip us and thrill us. And so our commitment to local church isn't merely a preference, but a biblical preoccupation. We love the church as Christ's bride, his treasure, his pride in the earth, his workmanship. Secondly... So first of all, he forgot I'm a member, I'm a member of an army, and we must be careful not to uh, forget that. Secondly, his identity and our identity as light, not darkness. Achan forgot who he was, and therefore how he should live. The New Testament says this: "You who formerly were darkness, are light in the Lord. And it's owning up to our identity who we are. We are light. God sends you as light in your office, in your workplace, in your college, in the household in which you live. You are light. It doesn't say you are just in the light. Leo Morris points out the Good News Bible has you are in the light. But Paul is saying something much more forceful. You are light. You used to be darkness. You used to be led about by this world, the principalities and the powers, your own flesh. You used to be darkness. Once you got saved, you became light. And as the army was coming in, bringing in the light of God, we are to go into all the world bringing in the light. Your lifestyle, your kindness, your patience, your forgiveness, your forbearance, your integrity. You are light. Your tendency not to murmur, complain, listen to gossip. You are light. And first of all, you're light because God did an amazing thing that when you became a Christian, you became identified with Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. All your darkness died with him on the cross. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. You are seated with him in the heavenlies. You are light. That's how New Testament sanctification works. It does it for you in terms of giving you a standing which you didn't get to. You've got cities you didn't build. You've got vineyards you didn't plant. You are light. God brought you into something. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. We're part of this new creation God's building. Now, New Testament sanctification is now that is true, so live it out. Now God has declared you righteous. Live out your righteousness. All sanctification comes from seeing ourselves as God now sees us. God tells us as a gift, freely, through one man's obedience, many are regarded as righteous. Hallelujah. We get up in the morning, we are righteous. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Hallelujah. Every morning I wake up, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. His spotless life as a child, his obedience, his diligence as a young man, his kindness, his mercy... Everything, every life, all that beautiful life, hey, it's all credited to me. His life, is not a, a philosophical concept. It is a life that was lived in beauty, innocence, and perfection, and it's all been accounted to you and to me. Hallelujah. He has done that for us. That's who we are. He's made us righteous as a gift. From then on, we live it out. So he says, now you are light. Now live as children of the light. And don't have anything to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. You don't belong there. That's not who you are anymore. That's foreign territory to you. It's not part of who you are. It's not the opposite, like you get in Colossians, the kind of legalism, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. You might make yourself holy if you get on with this religious stuff. Paul says it all looks very good as a form of religiousness, but has no power. Legalism doesn't produce it. Putting us into Christ and sharing us in his death, burial, resurrection, and life. That's accomplished it. Now God says, right, you are righteous. That's how I see you. Now live it. Now live it. That's how it works. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his magnificent book on light and darkness in the commentary in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, we are no longer what we were. (laughs) The first thing we have to do is tell ourselves just that. The whole art of Christian living is to know how to talk to yourself. He then goes on and makes this bold statement. If you don't preach to yourself, you're not a Christian. <laughs> Slightly, you know, forcefully said, we've got to tell yourself, hey, this is who I am. Achan forgot who he was, and it's important that we know who we are. Legalism tries to make you accomplish it. Grace says that's who you are now, live it to the glory of God. By one offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified in their lifestyle but it's already perfected before god hallelujah so we live it up that's who we are and so we need to take on board other statements like paul says in 1 corinthians 7 don't you know your body is the temple of the holy spirit who's in you whom you have from god you're not your own how can you take your body which is a member of christ and join it to another what fellowship has your light with that darkness what are you playing at? Come on. Achan, what are you doing? You're supposed to be in my army. God might say to you this morning, what are you doing? You're supposed to be my light. Why are you looking at that? Why do you want that? Why do you touch that? Why do you hide that? Don't you remember who you are? And so the story ends with ruthless execution. It's an Old Testament story. It's very shocking to our modern eye. But Achan is ultimately identified through searching out and executed. Do you know the language of the putting to death is carried right over into our New Testament? He was put to death. He was found to be a compromising member. And God's wrath was raised. He said, I won't have it. As I said earlier, it's in a similar vein in the New Testament where you find Ananias and Sapphira when the revival breaks out. And this is the urgency, and I I do want to communicate this with all love. I honestly believe with all my heart that God says we're moving to a new address. All these images, I think, Lord, how many more images do you have? (laughs) It's so marvelous. And I don't want any of us to lose it. I don't want any of us to miss it so it's with real urgency and affection that I'm bringing this to your attention. Be ruthless, because if we're not, we're in danger of losing up. And this isn't just for the young people I've seen who've had tragic experiences, actually have been people in their middle years. I've seen that more than I've seen young missing up. I've seen guys who thought, I would never have dreamed that it would have happened to them gave me the church list and said, choose which guy, I would never have got to that one. That's happened a few times in my experience over the years. I can't believe it. So we need to be so very, very ruthless. If you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, because you've died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's who you are. That's where you are. Verse 5 of the same passage, Colossians 3, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly body. So you've got a new man inside here, but living in a body not yet redeemed, with vulnerabilities, things your hands used to do before you became a new man, things your eyes used to look at, things you used to say, listen to, that body used to do that stuff. But now you're a new man. Your body is yet to be saved. One day we'll get a new body as well. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? If you saw my dancing last night, you think, he needs one of those. <laughs> All right, we need a new body. That's going to come one day. I'm a new man in here. But I need to take responsibility for my eyes and my hands, my conversation, what I take on board. They must become, I put to death. That which will spoil evil desires, greed, sensual immorality, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There's the Achan story. Put to death these things because the, the wrath of God is marching across Canaan. The wrath of God is marching across the world. The wrath of God is coming. We know about it. God's had enough of. So why do you look and see and take? So put it to death. Be ruthless. Take action. Take responsibility. And Let me draw to a close by the Romans 8 recommendation where it says, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you by the Spirit. Beloved, it is a spiritual occupation. The so-called mortification of the flesh. It's done, if you by the Spirit, you do it by the Spirit. It's not done as ascetics have done it, sort of fasting and beating themselves and, and putting on clothing that hurts and, you know, trying to put the flesh to death. No, no, by the Spirit. How do I do it by the Spirit? Let me give you four E's. By engagement with the Spirit. In other words, get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Engagement with the Spirit. You said, well, I don't know if I am. Get the tape we did in, the, in the, uh, the training track, Receiving the Spirit. Say, well, I don't know if I am. Get that and listen to it. Paul's preoccupation, when he went to Ephesus, as we heard from Dave Devenish, have you received the Spirit? That's the big issue. I can't put to death the deeds of the body without the Holy Spirit's help. So first, engage with the Spirit. Secondly, enjoy The Holy Spirit. Don't just tick it off. Yeah, baptized. Oh, yeah, back back in 89, I think it was. No. We need to enjoy the Holy Spirit. Develop a relationship with Him. It says of Jesus, even. Jesus, I love this phrase, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I've often thought, thought, I wonder what that looked like. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Ah, think about it. We haven't time to stay there now, but. Jesus knew what it was to rejoice in the Spirit. See, it's much easier to put to death other things when you are more and more enjoying the Spirit, engaging with, enjoying Him, enjoying His fellowship. It's quite plain. uh, There again in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine. So what? No, be filled with the Spirit. Oh, I see. How do I put to death? Well, just get full of the Spirit. Speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you may look drunk, but you're not drunk with wine, which is to dissipation. Now you're full of God. The energy of the Spirit, by His presence and power, we're partakers of the divine nature. (laughs) By His presence and power, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5 describes the Spirit-filled life. Walking in this way, that way, marriage and home. It's all Holy Spirit energized. And we put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. Galatians 5 takes you into the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness and meekness. That's putting to death anger and so on. Positively enjoying the life of God. Starving out the other stuff. And then lastly, what I've called the eschatology of the Spirit. What do I mean? I mean this. The Holy Spirit... Is the promise of the age to come. When the Spirit comes, we're getting a foretaste of eternal glory. God's wonderful glory, as we were hearing from Rob yesterday, it's like drawing the glory. We're entering the Holy Spirit is a foretaste of eternal glory. It's a pledge, it's a down payment. It's not like, well, you can have some of that before I give you this. No, you can have some of this before I give you more of this. Is heaven coming down to us where we are now? It's, it is something, a foretaste. And so it's, a, if you like, this, fa- this fallen, world, fallen world is passing away. We are having a taste of the eternal glory. That's, uh, even now, the darkness is nearly gone. Light is breaking out. The darkness is nearly over. Day is at hand. That's the New Testament. Live the life. days is at hand. Don't live in the dark. The light's breaking on. Hey, can you fool? Light's breaking in, you stupid man. Now, beloved, hear it. You stupid person. If you make it all private, oh, I've got this problem with sin, I, I get all into lust and stuff. Listen, remember who you are. We're the light of the world. You're in an army. The light's breaking out. Night's nearly over. Days at hand. Walk oh, as children of the light. The Holy Spirit is giving you a foretaste of eternal Glory. What are you doing playing around with something less than that? We take his stance on the coming wrath. We're beyond his wrath. Because as uh, Joel prayed earlier, you know, Lord, you poured out your wrath on him so you can pour out your love on us. We're beyond judgment. We've already, we're through judgment and out the other side. We're ready for glory, we're out of the dark. And the Holy Spirit will witness that to you. Your new creation. The new creation is coming through. We're part of it. We're already into it. We're having a foretaste of it. We're part of the thing that is coming. The Holy Spirit is a foretaste. So by the Holy Spirit, put to death. Be ruthless. Make decisions. Say, I'm not going there anymore. I'm not taking that magazine anymore. I'm blocking that channel on my computer. I'm making myself accountable. I want you to ask me. Ask me. When I see you next, ask me. Be ruthless. Pluck it out. Beloved, we want to come through together. We want to say, oh, some empty seats over there. They were there last year. Yeah, what happened? Well, I don't know. He just went off. He got this girl and this guy. Oh, really? I mean, they looked so great punching the air down there last night. They really did that? Yeah, they See, it's so powerful. One of the men I tragically lost years ago, a man in his middle years, Wendy and I went away on vacation, we came back, and the elders broke it to me. This guy, right at the heart of the church, he's gone off with another woman. but he's married he's got children, he's got a job, he's an elder. I went to meet him in his workplace. I pleaded with him, please don't do this. Because he wouldn't come to church, he'd want to hide away. So I went to his office. Please. And it was like talking to a brick wall. He's my friend for years. It's like, it's like, I don't know you, I don't want to talk to you. He was absolutely intoxicated. First thing was he saw. Middle-aged man. And he started from that time on, when he went to work, he took a different rope, just in case he might see her again. Can I give you a lift? You stupid man. Lost everything. Lost his inheritance. Lost his wife and children. Lost his job. Started with seeing, you know, I wish I'd never even seen her. God wants us to be ruthless. I want to encourage you, beloved, in an undisciplined generation, it tells you, be fulfilled, learn another lesson, be ruthless. So like, I'm not going there, I'm going to make some decisions. I'm not going that way. I'm not responding to that. You must be ruthless. You have to put to death. That's ugly language. Be ruthless. They killed him. They killed Achan. I want to finish with the opening verses of the next chapter, which I won't preach on or anything, but notice what it says. Now the Lord said to Joshua, don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Take all the people of war. What are they? People of war. Who are you? People of war. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. Remember who you are. Take all these people of war and arise and go and take Ai." And they went and had a great victory. I want to help you this morning to be ruthless. I want to invite you, beloved, if you say, Well, I know I've been looking and I've been, I don't know, fascinated by craving, even. Some of you say, Well, I've touched what I shouldn't touch. I've allowed to touch what I shouldn't have allowed to touch. But today, I want to be ruthless, I want to put this to death. And I want to remember, I'm in an army. Let's stand before the Lord. And The musicians, I just want us to draw very close to God.